Welcome, this is Mark Steiner, and welcome here to the Mark Steiner Show and Soundbites, produced right here in Baltimore out of WEAA 88.9 FM, the voice of the community, and broadcast on Delmarva Public Radio, WSDL 90.7 FM. Uh, and on our way to our conversation here today, let me remind you, Mark Steiner Show and Soundbites are brought to you in part by MeQ Baltimore's Credit Union, offering a full range of financial services. MeQ Baltimore's Credit Union is helping its members and its community prosper. When you invest in yourself, MeQ invests in you. And remember, it's a credit union, not just a bank. Money belongs to you. Money comes back in the end. More information at www.mecu.com uh, or at steinershow.org is MeQ's banner right there. So we are going to talk for this first part of our program about (coughs) the article that appeared in the New York Times that caused an uproar by Nicholas Kristof abusing chickens we eat uh, and was a report on a reform in North Carolina that raises chickens for Purdue. Uh, It was um, sponsored by Compassion in World Farming. So let me just say how we're going to run today. Uh, we were going to have compassion them on in a in kind of a debate discussion with the Center for Food Integrity. The center could not supply anybody today, though they did want to join us here for the program. So we're asking them to come back in the following week or two, uh, right after New Year's, to have this discussion with uh, uh, the folks from Compassion World Farming. Uh, but we're going to start off today talking to Rachel, Dre- Rachel Dreskin, who is U.S. Food Business Manager for Compassion World Farming, and then talk to two farmers about their sense of what this report says and doesn't say. And Rachel, welcome. Good to have you with us here. Thank you. Good to be here. Thank you for having me, Mark. So there's a lot of controversy around this uh, piece, obviously. But talk a bit about this, what happened between you and Nicholas Kristoff, where the article came from, um, and what you did. Certainly. Uh, so earlier this year, uh, in the spring, we were introduced through a mutual contact to Craig Watts, uh, who is a contract poultry grower for Purdue. Uh, And after 22 years of farming chickens for Purdue, Craig had reached a a breaking point of sorts, and he invited us uh, as farm animal advocates to his farm to film and to document what was happening behind the closed doors of the U.S. chicken industry. Uh, so the video uh, shows the welfare conditions and how they contrast uh, Purdue's natural, uh, national advertising and the USDA's process verified humanely raised claim. Uh, so the video, which has already been viewed uh, over 1.2 million times since it was released uh, earlier this month, uh, shows the inhumane and the filthy conditions that the Purdue chickens are raised in. Um, and this is including chickens that are being labeled and marketed as natural and humane. Uh, so in the video, um, if, if you haven't seen the video yet, um, we see chickens that are packed into uh, these large windowless warehouses. Um, and we see the issues um, that these chickens uh, have, such as lameness. Um, so we see chickens that are sick, that have genetic problems, such as cross-feet. Uh, missing eyes or deformed legs. Uh, we see birds that are overcrowded and overheated, and we see birds that are very inactive and are squatting almost continuously um, due to the breeding problems, which forces them to grow so big so quickly that it's uncomfortable to move around. Uh, so because of, of Craig's, um, the farmer's openness and bravery, we now have this great look into the U.S. chicken industry that has been 
notoriously closed off so, to the American public. So before I turn to, to the, the two farmers who are joining us here today, um, I mean, well, there, there have been when I when I read the kind of response from both Purdue and from the National Chicken Council, and especially from the Center for Food and Integrity, Fo- Center for Food Integrity, s- some of their questions had to do with this looks like selective editing. Um, that there are always going to be chickens that are are injured uh, in these gigantic flocks uh, that are housed in poultry houses, uh, and every chicken doesn't look like that. Every chicken isn't doesn't have a raw red belly. Every chicken doesn't have a cross beak. Every chicken isn't doesn't isn't deformed in their legs. And this was kind of a a selective look at what this looks like, at least in that in, in that particular instance. Yes. Well, the issues that um, we're seeing with the chickens, unfortunately, is they're not unusual cases. The issues that we're seeing with the chickens are due to practices that are um, standard industry practice. Um, So, for example, the chickens that are on Craig's farm are bred to to grow very big, very quickly, um, his growth rates are within the industry average. And because the chickens are growing so big so quickly that their legs can't support them well, they are squatting almost throughout their entire, you know, at the end of their lives, they're almost continuously squatting and they're sitting on the ammonia filled litter, which causes their underbellies to become red. So unfortunately, it's not just, you know, Craig's flock or a few chickens within the flock. It is because of standard industry practice that the birds at large are experiencing these difficulties. So let me let me bring in the, 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 the two guests to, to join us here, Lee, Lee Richardson um, and Carol Morrison. Lee Richardson is a grain and poultry farmer. has been on the show many times. He's a Farm Bureau member in Wicomico County, uh, does raise chickens for Purdue. Let me say that up front, and uh, this, uh, has a diverse farm. Carol Morrison used to raise chickens for Purdue as a twin, and has gone to now having her own farm where she raises chickens at Bird's Eye View Farm in Pocomoke City, which are egg-laying chickens that she has. And we also visited... We've visited both these farms and done stories on both their farms over the last two years. And Lee and Carol, welcome. Good to have you both with us again. Good morning. Good morning, Lee. Morning, Carol. Good morning, Mark. Thank you for having me. Always great to have you both. Uh, so let me just ask this question. I mean, I, I don't know. We've seen part of the video. I know you both have read the story um, by Nicholas Kristoff and seen the responses from um, the National Chicken Council, Purdue, and the Center for Food Integrity. Um, and Leah, let me start with you, Leah. I mean, and, I, and I've been to your farm. Um, I've seen your operation, and I'm just and, and other people who farm for, for Purdue. So, what's your, what your initial response? I mean, the, 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 there are questions here about uh, the, the litters not being changed between flocks, sometimes for years. The underbelly is becoming raw and unfeathered. Uh, the birds being sick. So, what, what when you saw that? I'd just like to get your honest, straightforward response to that. Well. Uh... I guess to start with, you know, what I saw in the video, you know, was there are birds, there will be birds that um, have uh, genetic, or I mean, you know, genetic problems. I mean, look at humans today. I mean, you have humans with genetic disabilities when they are born or even as they get older. It's nothing uncommon in nature. So, yeah, I have these birds. I euthanize these birds, which this grower should have done instead of, you know, picking them out to film. Um, they need to be eliminated for health reasons and um uh as far as the litter gets changed yeah, we change it every right now on a two-year program uh i've had tours all the time they walk in there they see it's it's mostly wood chip the majority of it and if the floors are if your waters are kept up and the floors are kept dry it's 
the conditions are not what they explain. Um, I raise birds. I raise them in an enclosed house. There is no windows. They have air conditioning. They have heat, just like a person working in an office. So uh, I don't see the difference in human care and these care of these birds. So, and, and Carol, I, and, and your response when you saw this, I mean, I know that, that one of the things that's it's clear, and, and I think there's something we, that's interesting to debate and talk about with people, is that the, the, these chickens that we, that we talk about are, are, are bred specifically for this, for, for, to be raised for large breasts, with large breasts, so they can be sold to the marketplace. I mean, that they're, not the, they're not your grandfather's chicken. Um, that's correct. The, the, genet- the genetics are selected uh, to specifically raise the type of bird that's being raised. Um, it, their, their bones and internal organs do not keep up with the rapid growth. And seeing what was uh, in, in the video um, is not unusual on any farm. And um, having personally, I, I personally know Craig. Uh, I know what kind of a grower he is. I've seen his paperwork from the flock settlement uh, that the birds were filmed in. Um, you know, he, he ranked second from the top. What do you mean, rank second from the top? Well, there's a ranking system when when all the chickens move in one week, and um, basically it is all of the input costs into the raising of the flock versus the output, which is pounds of meat. That's the simplest way to explain it. It's it's a fairly complicated formula. However, all the flocks that moved in the same week that that flock of chickens moved. On Craig's farm, he ranked second from the top. So obviously, the company saw nothing wrong with those chickens. They processed them. They sold them. I've seen the visitation reports that were left by the company uh, flock supervisor that visits the farm at least once a week. Um, Everything was marked good. There was nothing in there about animal abuse. So obviously the company was okay with it. To turn it around on the grower is, is um, you know, the, the industry standard. It's always the grower's fault. It's not the fault that with the mixed-up genetics that the chickens cannot live like a normal chicken. I have normal chickens on my farm. They're, they're heritage breed chickens that go back past our grandfather's time. They act like chickens. They're outside running around, foraging, um, you know, flapping their wings, dust bathing, whatever they want to do. Um, and they come and go as they please. They're not confined. They are definitely cage-free. Um, you know, they're not in a confinement house. So I wasn't shocked at the video because, as I said, I, I've known Craig for a very long time. He was to the point of boiling over like a pot of water on the stove. He had talked to the company repeatedly. He has his own videos that he has taken for years of different flocks of what was brought to his farm by the company to have him raise. And I've seen these videos. Craig had no choice but to do what he did to put a stop to what is going on. So, so uh, uh, I, I want to come. I want to come back to Lee. So, how does that square with? I mean, y- your world. I mean, I, it's it, it's I mean, I, listeners who who read these articles and see this. Um, 
uh, I think I'm wrestling with all this. And, and, and so, because they do come once a week. Um, and I, I have also been to Purdue Farms where I honestly say that I've not seen those conditions exist. Um, though the, though the, the aroma of the, of the ammonia is overwhelming sometimes in those houses. But other than, so, so I'm, I mean, is it the farmer? Is it the, the, the lack of Purdue oversight or anybody else's oversight? Well, uh, I, I think it is the grower. But, uh, you know, at the same time, Purdue does have a commitment to oversee what he does. And, and for, um, I mean, I get on my report all the time different things that, you know, that I've not done or they think that I should be doing or something like that. I mean, I get taken care of. I don't know what's different in North Carolina. I see nothing. Um, so, yeah, there, there should be an oversight. And how I got over, oversighted that, you know, I don't know. Um, like I said, the birds should have been taken up. The one picture in the video that shows the birds panting, uh, you know, I'm aware that this grower has tunnel ventilation. Those birds should be panting in three weeks if he's doing what he's supposed to be doing. Now, whether they were panting when the Fox Riser visited or whether they turned the fans off to get them panting for the video, I don't know. I, I don't know what they did. But at three weeks, birds in my chicken houses and other chicken houses like it do not pant. And that, that's another question I was going to ask about the, the, that part of the, about the video around the, the chickens panting um, at the end. Um, but I, I wonder if this is a function, though, before I bring Rachel Bacon to the end of the program here, uh, this segment anyway, if that's it's a function of how we raise chickens and the chickens we have to be to be raised like that because Cal you couldn't you couldn't take your the chickens you raise for eggs let's say you're raising a, a, raising them for meat you couldn't you couldn't raise those chickens in that atmosphere they have you have to have a different kind of chicken to be raised in that atmosphere to start with correct um, no I could I could um, confine these chickens if I wanted to and I could power ventilate with fans. Um, I don't choose to do so because, to me, it's just a larger cage that they're in, whether it be a chicken house or a small wire cage. I just choose to raise them the way that I do. Um, You know, uh, as far as the housing and the specifications, um, you know, Craig gets a premium in his pay because he has premium, premium housing according to Purdue standards. What is that? What does premium housing mean? He's got the best housing out there that you can have. That you have, the farmer has to buy. He has all the bells and whistles, yes. So, you know, um, and I'd like to go back to what we were saying about the abuse. There is a clause in the contract that says that the company can come on the farm at any time if they deem it necessary that the farmer is not raising the flock properly and Purdue can take over and the farmer has to pay Purdue for doing it. So nobody went in and took over that flock of chickens. So uh, that, that I guess that's that's where the disconnect is for me. I mean I, I and I'm trying to figure out how to I mean how the listeners and readers kind of put their hands around this because I mean um the chickens are out there because we buy chickens because they're so inexpensive and they and they're there and they 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 easily raised in the, in that sense Lee and I guess that, that I guess that's the question when when that, that Carol was kind of posing here um um that you would think that if there were all these chickens that were not doing well that the company or any company whoever that might be Mount Air Tyson whoever would have picked up on that that that's industry wide the issues that go on inside the chicken house 
I'm not saying that every single chicken looks like that. Right. And I'm not saying that every single chick that's delivered to the farm is sick like the ones we saw. However, those chicks should have never left the hatchery. They should have been euthanized immediately upon hatching. Not sent out to the farm for the farmer to clean up and eat the cost. Because those costs are yours, Lee. If you if you find chickens, the, the, if you find chickens that are that are that are that you think are not genetically correct, that you think are sick, that are not that that are that something's wrong with them, whether it's cross beaks or something's wrong with their legs, that you, you it's on you to euthanize them. Is that correct? Correct. Lee. Yeah. Yeah. It would be. They would. Um, that would be a bird. I don't have at the end to go to production or for um, meat production, but uh, at the same time, if I don't euthanize them. They still continue to eat, feed, and drink water and take up room that could be left for the healthy birds. So, in other words, it pays to euthanize them in my, you know, to make me perform better. Do you understand? Yeah, I do. Yep, yep. So, so in other words, but, you know, you walk in my chicken houses or a lot of other chicken houses I've walked into, the birds, you know, are not suffering. You know, yes, there, you know, there is some that need to be called. You know, I, I could have made the same video that this company made or um, group made, and then te- and then within an hour later, I can have a um, third-party um, welfare, animal welfare group come in and check, and they'd be perfect. I mean, that it, it's totally possible. If I turn my fans off, get them nice and, like, 10 degrees higher than what they were used to the last few days, they'll be sitting there panting, and then I'll go find, you know, you got, say, 34,000 chickens in one chicken house, you're going to miss some of the calls each day, and you try to catch them the next day and the next day and so on. Um, you're not going to see every one of them. So, you know, there is a chance of coming there and still be able to find one. But it's to my advantage to get rid of those for, um, you know, production standards, you know, to be, be a top producer. So the- Mark, that's, that's something I'd like to um, speak to for a moment, if I may, um, something that Lee just brought up, which I think is a very important thing that we should focus on with this video, aside from looking at the welfare of each individual chicken, which is very, very important, of course, um, but also what I think was um, why this video became so popular and received so many views in such a short time is that when you look at the system at large, you look at the grand picture and you see what these warehouses actually look like because it's very difficult um, you know, the industry makes it very hard for consumers to actually see what it looks like inside a factory farm. And the reality of a factory farm is that we have these windowless warehouses that are uh, 20,000 square feet. And we are, we are cramming 30,000 birds into a warehouse that is 20,000 square feet, which, you know, you look at that and you say, okay, each bird has, has less than a square foot of space each. So you're looking at a, um, you know, vast overcrowding of the birds within the shed. And you're looking at a system where there is um, there is some ventilation through fans, but it's not enough uh, to keep the air fresh. And we're looking at a system that doesn't have any natural light for the birds. And I think that is one of the most shocking things for the consumers to see. And we wanted to bring this footage to light because chicken coming from these this specific farm, Craig's farm, is being marketed as natural chicken and is being marketed as humane. 
um, under so, the USDA Process Verified Program. So we're, 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 we're almost out of time in this particular segment. We're going to come back to this for a much longer segment, but I went with, with, with very soon. But let me let me read this 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 uh, this um, message here. This, we just got in from Kathy. And let, let let you folks kind of respond very quickly to this. It, it says she writes in Purdue sends unhealthy flocks to Craig. Because he's been so outspoken in the past few years, it's a way to punish him with his canceling his contract because he's out in public. It would be difficult for them to cancel his contract without can- uh, well, I mean, he, she, meant, she meant to write without canceling his contract. So, I mean, so it's, it's part of what's going on here. Also, this is a battle between um, a, a grower and Purdue over these chickens. I mean, and it kind of which is why this is where this debate started. I would say so. Um, after after several several times of trying to talk to the company in in the complex in North Carolina, um, you know, going all the way to the top and being in, told in in some shape or form, just keep your mouth shut. Craig reached a point that he he couldn't take it anymore. That's not farming. Farmers don't get animals just to have to kill them. So let, let me get, I'm going to get Lee Richardson to have a kind of final thought here. Lee? Well, I guess it, it, if that's the way you felt, why is he still growing for Purdue then? Why don't he just do like Carol Morrison does and uh, grow, grow them the way he wants to grow them? If that's the issue. And I, I think there's, there's a whole lot more to hear, the, the, this, the story. and and. What did you say, Carol? It is called debt. That's the answer to the question, and you know it, too. And Everybody, every grower has debt, lots of it. Uh, well, and you had debt, and you walked away. Yep. And so so this is – I'm sorry we have to have this only for this half hour. We're going to come back to this, and we're going to invite Rachel Dreskin back, and we're going to invite the folks from uh, to come back on who want to come in for, for the Center for Food Integrity so they can join this conversation as well. Uh, and we have a statement for Purdue that we're going to put on our website. It was too long to read in this shortened segment today, but we're going to invite everybody back here for a longer conversation after the new year. Um, I think Rachel Dreskin – who is a U.S. food business manager for Compassion World Farming. Rachel, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you for having me, Mark. Lee Richardson, it's always great to talk to you. Grand and poultry farmer and uh, a Farm Bureau member and leader from Wicomico County. Always good to have you with us, Lee. Yes, thank you. Happy holidays. Same to you. And Carol Morrison, who is transitional, who went from working for Purdue to her own farm. She runs Bird's Eye View Farm in Pocomoke City, uh, and her chicken eggs are sold all across uh, at Whole Foods and many other places. Carol, thank you for being with us once again. Thank you. And we're going to take a brief break. And when we come back, we are going to be joined by Brian Terry, author of Afro Vegan. Don't go away. We'll be right back. Welcome back. This is Mark Steiner. And you're listening to The Mark Steiner Show and Sound Bites on WEAA 88.9 FM, the voice of the community, and on Delmarva Public Radio, WSDL. 90.7 FM and WSCL 89.5 FM. We're about to talk with Brian Terry. Brian Terry has written this book called Afro Vegan Farm Fresh African Caribbean and Southern Flavors Remixed. He's a chef and a food justice activist from Oakland, California, host of Urban Organic, a multi episode web series that he co created, author of four books, including the critically acclaimed uh, Vegan Soul Kitchen, and co author with Anna Lape 
our dear friend Anna Lape, of Grub, Ideas for an Ur- Urban Organic Kitchen. And he's going to talk, as I said, about his latest book, Afro-Vegan. So, Brian Terry, welcome to the Mark Steiner Show. Good to have you here. Thank you for having me on. So you also worked with Anna Lape, huh? Yeah, Anna and I met when I was living in New York City. I live in the Bay Area now, um, the West Coast. But I was living in New York City, and I had a... Uh, I had founded an organization called Be Healthy, which worked with young people, really getting them excited about food and cooking and farming issues and all that stuff. And we were young at the time, so um, my home address was being used. And Anna looked in this book that was featuring a lot of cutting-edge youth organizations at the time, and she saw that I lived around the corner from her. (laughs) Oh, cool. And so she called me, and we met for a coffee and quickly became friends. And within a year, we were writing a book together. So, yeah, I love Anna LaPay. So I'm just curious about, very quick before we jump into the book, your own journey. I mean, I read in the book how you grew up um, in Memphis and, and in northern Mississippi. Uh, yes. Your grandparents were very kind of southern and rural part of it. Um, yes. Um, so I grew up in Memphis, but my, my family comes from rural Mississippi and rural Tennessee, and I spent a lot of time visiting there as a child, just, you know, being on the farms and connecting with them. So I feel like that's part of my DNA, even though I didn't necessarily – live in the, the country, as they used to say. <laughs> That's right, in the country, right. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I'm curious, your own journey, though, because, I mean, it's it's incredibly important to kind of live with the people you lived with, your grandparents, and be able to, as you described, all the food in that garden, and eating fresh food, and eating your grandparents' food, and the whole Southern cooking, which is just delicious. But I, clearly, I bet your grandparents weren't vegans. No, no, my grandparents, by, by, by no stretch were they, they vegans, but, you know, the thing that often gets lost because of the title of my, vegan being the title of my book, is uh, the focus that I'm trying to help people, you know, shift to, which is on farm fresh and garden fresh ingredients, and that was something that I did grow up around, you know, I, the, the food that we ate was as local as our backyard garden, it was always in, in season, and it was as fresh as being harvested right before we prepared it for the meals. And so uh, there, there are those two kind of threads that I'm really trying to uh, tackle in the book. How can we get more people eating, uh, you know, plant-forward, plant-strong or vegetable-forward diets or vegetarian or vegan diets, however you want to look at it, but also just um, really supporting local food systems by growing food at home if people have the ability to, but if not, you know, supporting local farmers at uh, farmers markets and community supported agriculture programs and, um, you know, wherever we can get local food sources so that we can actually um, have healthy food that's delicious and nutrient-rich, but also ensure that we're supporting our neighbors, giving them the most money from our dollar. But you are a vegan. Uh, you know, <laughs> it's funny because I um, I don't describe myself that way for political reasons, while I, you know, even though I don't eat animal products. And part of that is because uh, so much of my work is about getting uh, people of color, uh, particularly African-Americans, given that they are impacted uh, by, you know, preventable diet-related illnesses, heart disease, hypertension, type 2 diabetes, and the the growing body of research that is, you know, very clear that the overconsumption of animal products contributes to a lot of chronic illnesses. So I really see the books that I write as a tool to help people uh, kind of address this public health crisis that we're seeing among um, Americans in general, but particularly the most impacted communities. And so uh, I, I realized that, that that term vegan, it triggers a lot of people. Yes. It brings up a lot of negative connotations, stereotypes, you know, uh, Birkenstock wearing, 
cheese in Berkeley that just eat brown rice and tofu or, <laughs> you know, just like bland, boring food. And, 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 and the, the, the work that I do is really about uh, confronting those stereotypes and showing people that you can have food that's vegan, that's um, exciting, that's delicious, that's interesting. And also, um, you know, there are black people who identify as vegans and vegetarians and, and who've been doing this for a while. Now, uh, uh, going, going to the heart of what you're talking about here, before we talk about the way you wrote this book and what's in it, is your idea here about reclaiming the Afro-diasporic culture, but food, and as you put mm -hmm. it, bringing it in from the margins, making it mainstream and, and palpable for people's lives, and that there's, to you there's a history in this food in this way that, that talks about an entire culture. Yes, yes. Well, just going back to what I... Um mentioned a second ago, there's this history throughout the 20th century of people of African descent, African Americans, black folks, who have been fierce advocates for vegetarian and vegan diets. I mean, we can go back to the, the health ministry of organizations like, you know, the, I mean, the Seventh-day Adventists, who have often, you know, been very uh, supportive and, and kind of advocating for vegetarian and vegan diets for right. their um, faith community to the Nation of Islam, whatever you, you know, disagreements we might have with some of their politics, they were um, very clear about this health ministry and getting African Americans to eat uh, more, you know, healthful foods and rejecting industrialized foods. Rastafarians with the ICAO diet, the social justice um, activist and comedian Dick Gregory, you know, who was uh, very clear about uh, the need for African Americans to eat more plant-based foods, um, even going as far as advocating for raw food diet, which I don't necessarily think that, uh, that is for everyone. But, you know, and, and Coretta Scott King, who was a vegan and a, a really um, staunch advocate of veganism. And so I simply want people to recognize that when someone like me or Allende Howe or any African-American uh, cookbook writers or, or health advocates are talking about eating more plant-centered diets, that we're standing on the shoulders of so many of these ancestors who have been, you know, calling for this type of um, eating throughout the 20th century. And as, as far as, you know, eating more locally and sustainably, this is simply part of uh, the legacy of eating not only in, you know, the Americas, but in the Caribbean and obviously on the African continent as well. And so for me, it's, it's not necessarily about teaching people anything new, but really about helping people remember these legacies. <coughs> Excuse me, I'm sorry. <clears throat> And I, and I think that the way you put these things in the book, I think, are important. I mean, I think that it's when you talk about <clears throat> the connections around uh, people's lives, the kind of food that was created, the spices that were created, the food that was grown, how it enveloped the diaspora, but the diaspora in that sense, is, sense keeps enveloping and developing throughout the world. You know, mm -hmm. it's, it's become part of the basis for human culture, really, not just African culture. Yes, yes, exactly. And, you know, I, I do think it's important for me to make an intervention in this body of uh, vegan cookbook writing and simply give people who enjoy uh, vegetarian and vegan food just more exciting, interesting flavors and uh, cooking techniques and classic dishes and just, you know, fun things to work with, uh, a little more brightness in that, that whole genre. Um, and, you know... I realize that everyone isn't necessarily going to <laughs> convert to vegetarian or vegan, but one of the reasons I'm so hopeful is that I, I, I've seen a major shift 
over the past decade. You know, I've been doing this work for almost 15 years now. But um, in, in regard to people who are recognizing that, you know, eating more plant-centered diets is uh, just something that we all should be doing. And, you know, I have people who tell me, look, I am not going to convert to a vegan. I am going to be eating meat for the rest of my life. But I do meatless Mondays now, or I do vegan before six, or I don't necessarily feel like every meal has to have meat on the plate. And I think that uh, a book like this and the, the innumerable brilliant vegetarian and vegan cookbooks that are on the market these days right. are um, resources for helping people just to eat uh, more real food and reject you know, what Michael Pollan calls edible food like substances that fake stuff. <laughs> no, no, right, exactly. I mean, and it's also, you know, I was thinking about that looking at your book and think, hearing what you're saying now that, and I was talking about this this morning with some folks on the air about food yesterday, actually, was that, you know, you can, I'm not a vegan, nor am I a vegetarian, uh, but I eat a lot of veg, a lot of vegetarian meals and, and, and vegan as well, like today at lunch. But But part of it is, just saying to you, for me, saying to myself, I am not going to eat any more meat in a restaurant from a place that I don't know where it came from. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. that I will deal maybe with the murder of an animal, but I will not deal with its torture. Yeah, yeah. We all have that. to approach it in different ways and get to a place. And I think that that's it's because what you're talking about is doing it in a way that's not um, either condescending um uh or judgmental yeah well mark let me tell you when i started moving towards uh vegetarianism and then veganism when i was in high school um as young people should be i was very overzealous about (laughs) this new dietary model this new way of thinking and and moving through the world and um I was, whatever your stereotypes are about the, the most judgmental, dogmatic, self-righteous, finger-wagging vegan, that's who I was. And, <laughs> you know, <laughs> the people who had to deal with my wrath more than anyone else were my parents. And I think that just that part of my journey was so important because it really helped me realize that the least effective way of helping the people to shift their habits and attitudes and politics around food is by yelling at them by screaming at them, by making them feel bad for where they are and, and not meeting people um, where they are. And so um, my approach as a, as a food activist, as a cookbook author, has always been about really um, having compassion for my health. So fellow human beings, you know, I did enter into vegan politics or food politics, if you will, as, in high school as um, and kind of, kind of from the, um, the, through the lens of animal rights activism. But... Um, and I'm certainly, you know, clear about the need for us to be compassionate for animals and for us to, um, you know, confront uh, the way that they're treated in our industrial food system. But I think we have to be compassionate to each other as well. <laughs> I really believe that. No, and I agree. And then l- l- let's jump into your book and l- let's t- talk a bit about how you approach this whole thing. Um, and l- let's, let's start with Romare Bearden, who inspired you. Uh, yes. and, and this quote, the artist has to be something like a whale swimming with his mouth wide open. Absorbing, absorbing everything until he has what he really needs. Yes. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you this. One of the most challenging parts of uh, writing this book was actually uh, figuring out how to structure it. You know, initially I was leaning towards looking at the uh, way that food traveled from the African continent uh, through the transatlantic slave trade from Africa to the Caribbean to the American South. 
but then I felt like that would be so limiting. And the more that I tried to give it some very neat academic kind of like um, linear arc or some type of, you know, geographic arc, it, it just didn't make sense. And so I thought that the best way to approach it would be to, um, you know, kind of look at uh, the food as a collagenist might look at paper and, and you know, clippings or whatever materials that one might use. And so, you know, in regard to beard and coat, I just took uh, this period of time where I was just absorbing and just getting a lot of input from, you know, websites to home-cooked meals from friends to solid monographs to, um, you know, uh, narrative histories of African, African-Caribbean and Afro-American food. Uh, and, and just, like, really absorbing as much as possible. And then I dove into the process of writing it, and I felt like, you know, just kind of cutting and pasting and reworking and remixing the flavor profiles and staples and classic ingredients and classic dishes of all these different um, regions throughout the globe. Um, you know, farm fresh ingredients were at the heart and soul of all that, and that's what came out this book. <laughs> and it came out <laughs> really very strong. <laughs> but you, you also, I mean, the power of where the 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 the, the, the food of the African diaspora comes from and what is created, both in terms of its taste taste and ingredients, but it's also the culture because you wrapped each recipe around a soundtrack mm-hmm. and some recipes around the soundtrack and a book. Yeah. Um, you know, I was looking at the the smoky pili, pili pili sauce where mm-hmm. you used Angola by Cesare Evora. And yes. Buck, a memoir by M.K. Asante, who's also been on the show numerous times. So, I mean, that these are, tell me how you make these choices. Yeah. Well, you know, for me, I, so there, there are two things. There is this impulse in me to always combine food and music because that was just my upbringing. You know, I come from a very, I mean, I come from Tennessee, Memphis, which, you know, is a musical town in and of itself. And so just that's a part of my DNA. But... Uh, my uh, grandfather had a traveling quartet uh, in the 50s called the Four Stars of Harmony. Uh, it was one of the first African-American groups to perform on the radio. Um, and, you know, he really had an impact in, in that region. And, and because of him, all his children were very musical. So my, my uncle, Don Bryant, was the uh, the house songwriter for High Records, which was the label of Al Green. And um, Ann Peebles, who's my aunt, uh, you might be familiar with one of her songs, I Can't Stand the Rain, yes. which was her uh, one of her most popular songs. And so whenever we gathered um, as a family, there was food and there was music. There was Uncle Don, you know, playing the piano and my mother's and our sister's harmonizing and then all the other, you know, siblings singing. So they're just inseparable for me. And I realized that one thing that our industrial food system has done has kind of created this, this chasm where food is on one side and then art and culture and community are somewhere on the other side. And, you know, my work has really been about trying to bridge that gap. But I also see the soundtracks and the books and the film suggestions as a way of further educating people, you know, rather than, you know, taking up a lot of space, uh, talking about the impact of, an, uh, you know, the economic globalization on Jamaica and other Caribbean countries. Uh, through text, I simply recommend the film. Um, life and death, um, and and you know I feel like it's a great way for people to have more context about what's happening with food systems, with local economies in that region. And so um, you know it's a lot of layers to the book, but I always say that I've done my job. If you can, if if the if Afro vegan moves seamlessly from your kitchen countertop to 
to your coffee table to your bedroom nightstand, and I felt like I, I, I did my job well. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. Except if you do all that, you know it's going to have, by the time he gets back to your bedroom, it's going to have uh, all kinds of uh, seasoning stains on your fingers and your pages. And... <laughs> I mean, That's true. So. I can't keep a cookbook and have it not have, like, pieces of food in it. It's hard. Yeah, and that's why, you know, I don't know if the whole, um, you know, like, the digital revolution and, and books is going to really translate for a cookbook. Because I think people, like you said, they like having the book, you know, having that tactile experience and earmarking it, writing notes, and just, like, you know, getting it dirty a little bit. <laughs> you got to get it dirty. Mm-hmm. You got to get it dirty. So, so talk about some of these recipes. What, what? There's some I can cover ones I like, but what do you like? I mean, there's, there's a bunch well, of. Oh, no, go ahead. No, go ahead, man. I was going to talk about <laughs> smashed potatoes, peas, and corn with chili garlic oil. Yeah, yeah, that's a good one. That's a good one. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's it's funny. I I just got an email last night from uh, the owner of Omnivore Books in San Francisco. It's like. It's really popular uh, food-focused bookstore, and I just did a reading there on um, Monday, I believe. Monday or Tuesday, everything's a blur now. Uh, but uh, my, my wife is eight and a half months pregnant. We're about to have another kid. And Congratulations. Kind of crazy here Congratulations. Thank, thank you so much. But um, this, this mashed potato, cheese, and corn with chili garlic oil is actually inspired by uh, a Kenyan dish, one of the uh, staples of the Kikuyu people, the largest ethnic group in, in Kenya and East Africa, is um, a dish called irido. And irido is, uh, you know, kind of similar in uh, texture to mashed potatoes that we have here, but then they fold in uh, fresh peas and corn. So I thought, you know, rather than just kind of replicating that, what I wanted to do is um, do a deconstructed version where I take uh, new potatoes and then I roast them and then I smash them in the way that one would do a tosone, uh, the, you know, plantain uh, dish that people have in the, the Caribbean. And then I um, toast them some more until they're crispy. And then I do a very lightly sauteed uh, corn, mixture of corn and peas. And then I top the toasted uh potatoes with that corn and pea mixture and then drizzle the chili garlic oil on it. And uh, Cecilia, the owner of Omnivore Books, emailed me and said, you know what, I just had your uh, smashed potatoes, peas, and corn with chili garlic oil, but I had them with uh, seared salmon and a glass of wine, and it was delicious. And, you know, for me, it's just like I love hearing people kind of incorporate it into their way of eating. Peas, fish, she wanted to have with salmon, and that worked for her. And, and, And that's what... Uh, my recipe is about, you know, really having things that people can adapt uh, to make uh, sense for their own diet, for their own geographic region, for their own available ingredients, and uh, just run with it. I mean, I, I'm waiting. One thing I'm going to try, it would take about another month, is the heirloom tomato salad and basil sea salt and have Summertime by Angelique Kijo playing. Yes, <laughs> yes. That's a good musical choice. I like that one. Thank you, thank you. And then the other one I was going to have, I, I, we were going to try over the weekend is tofu curry with mustard greens. That was slamming. That is, man. Paul, this is, a, yeah. this, is, this, is, this is from a recipe for Tanzanian fish curry, right, originally? Yeah, yeah that was the inspiration for it. And, um, you know, I'm not, I'm not super into this whole kind of, and, and it's not as big of a uh, practice anymore, but I feel like there was this, this moment in vegetarian cookbook writing where it's this kind of ethos of like you just remove the meat and then you add a 
hunk of tofu or a hunk of tempeh or, you know, seitan or just some type of meat replacement. And so I try to avoid that. But for this dish, it just, it was so compelling, that rich, you know, curry sauce with the, the peanut butter and the different spices, you know, cumin and cardamom and chili and fresh black pepper and garlic and ground ginger and then the tomatoes. It's just, it's just such a rich and flavorful broth. But then you add the um, tofu that's been uh, roasted in the oven for about 30 minutes, tossed in olive oil and sea salt, and it has this like, nice crisp texture and, and then the mustard greens. And it just it comes together to just like it, it creates uh it's a party in your mouth. I'll leave it a little bit at that. <laughs> oh man, I you know I can't wait. And then and then yeah, at the back you have these menu suggestions and for for different uh, things might happen in the spring. A supper in honor of Dr. Carter Woodson and and coming up soon. This is this looks really good and I really want to because you have a bunch of recipes for this one uh, for the summer. The Juneteenth sweet and savory brunch. Yes, yes. Fresh peach, banana, and warm millet smoothie. Mm. Date almond cornbread Date. muffins. Yes. The fresh corn grits with Swiss chard and roasted cherry tomatoes. Woo! Millet and peanut stuffed avocado with harissa salsa. Jamaican mm-hmm. patties stuffed with mock jus. Mm-hmm. And chipotle banana pepper sauce. Have mercy. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> you know, this, this menu suggestion um, in the back of the book was really important for me because one thing that I hear from a lot of people uh, who are, you know, either vegetarian or vegans or, you know, transitioning or just interested in eating more vegetarian and vegan food is that when they pick up uh, meat-free cookbooks, they often read as a collection of side dishes. And so I really wanted to use this, this section as a way to educate people about putting together, you know, meals that are varied in colors and, and, and textures and flavors and um, that are satisfied, that have, you know, at least one dish that serves as kind of like the main, if you will, something that's a little heartier, um, something that has a little more, you know, weight to it and just to, you know, leave you uh, feeling satisfied after you finish the meal. Because, you know, a lot of people feel like, oh, yeah, you know, okay, sure, I'll try some of that vegetarian food, but then after that, I'm going to go eat some real food. (laughs) 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 You know, I I don't want people, I want people to feel like, okay, I had that and I'm good. I'm good until I have another vegetarian or vegan meal. (laughs) Hey, man, look, and you also have a thing in the back. You have, um, from our dear friend Michael Twitty, closes out your book with an essay called Think Like You Grow. Mm -hmm. That was important for me just to kind of, as as a, a final note, in the book to really get people thinking about the role that we all can play in supporting local food systems by, uh, you know, planting and and growing and and eating food uh, that we've had some part in producing, whether it's, you know, growing fresh herbs in a kitchen windowsill or tomatoes in a pot on our fire escape or building a raised bed garden in our front yard and growing food or, you know, supporting a local community garden or urban farm. So I think that, you know, a friend of mine once said that when you plant things in the ground and you cultivate them, it's a part, you're playing a part in healing the earth. And, and, and with our food system that is being controlled by just a handful of corporations who are dictating what farmers are growing, who are dictating what most Americans are eating, I think uh, the, the simple act, the simple act of growing food is, is revolutionary. And, and I think it'll play a part in us kind of reeling in our runaway food system and, and making sure that it's not the corporations that are dictating it, but it's the people who are dictating um, what we're eating. 
Amen. Well, that's a wonderful way to kind of conclude what we're talking about, Brian Terry. And I, if I could right now, I conclude it with the Amy Ashwood. <laughs> tell me about that. <laughs> Man, I'll tell you about that. First of all, you pair it with a great song, Africa Unite, Bob Marley. Great song. Mm, mm. This is ginger, mango, vodka, lime juice, and cayenne. It mm-hmm. is really good. Thank you. This way, I, I, I started with this. This is how I started. I went back and looked at the food later. I started with that. So it was good. Well, you know, even though the uh, the drink section is in the back of the book, I tell people you might want to start there and, <laughs> and start with some of the, the cocktails because that makes the uh, cooking of the dishes a lot more fun if you've had um, a drink or two. <laughs> no, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm, this weekend I'm going to try the Black Queen, orange pico tea, lemon juice, and sparkling wine. Okay, all right. I, I saw that it's like an end of the year, kind of bringing the New Year in dish, but I see you're going to start the party early. No, I'm <laughs> End of the season, bringing a new season. Yeah. So yeah, this is a wonderful book, Ben. I've really enjoyed the conversation and, and, and love this book, uh, Afro-Vegan. Uh, thank you so much for all the work you do and for putting this on our table. Thank you much, so much for having me on, Mark. It's been a pleasure. The Mark Steiner Show and Soundbites are a production of the Center for Emerging Media made possible in part by a grant from the Town Creek Foundation. Our producers are Mark Gunnery and Stephanie Mavronis. Our engineer at WEAA is Andre Melton. Our engineer at Public Radio Delmarva is Christopher Rank. To hear this show again, podcast any of our past shows, and find out information from the interviews we are doing on this program, please visit us on the web at steinershow.org. You can also listen to and download our podcasts on iTunes. For Public Radio WEAA, 88.9 FM, the voice of the community. And for WSDL 90.7 FM and WSCL 89.5 FM, Delmarva Public Radio, I'm Mark Steiner. Take care.